Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. We turn this morning to the book of Ecclesiastes again, and we will read from chapter 2 this week, verses 9 through 11, verses 18 through 24. As discussed last week, the book of Ecclesiastes is not the most optimistic of discourses that you will read in the Bible. Quite the contrary, the writer is an early existentialist. He is asking the question, why? Why am I here? It's followed by the question, what? What am I doing with my life? And his conclusions at that point are quite dark. His conclusion is a single Hebrew word, havel. Meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Many of you heard him say that last week because I was told by many of you, thanks a lot for making me feel so depressed. Well, the writer of Ecclesiastes is depressed. Yet he is truthful. And his search for truth leads him to a third question. How? How do I live in a world that seems to be filled with injustice, randomness, tragedy, suffering? How do we live lives of meaning and purpose when we can't seem to find much of that around us? I'm using the work and words of Viktor Frankl as commentary alongside the book of Ecclesiastes. And this is a good place to quote him speaking to a fellow doctor who felt that life was too bleak and maybe he should soften the blows of reality, he said this, you make your patients lie down on a couch and tell you things which sometimes are very disagreeable to tell. I am saying that people must sit up and hear things which sometimes are very disagreeable to hear. None of us are served well by denying life as it really is. For when we see it for what it is, we may not make sense of it, but we can make meaning of it. So Ecclesiastes chapter 2, the teacher says, I was the most famous person who had ever lived in Jerusalem. And I was very wise. I got whatever I wanted and did whatever made me happy. But most of all, I enjoyed my work. Then I thought about everything I had done, including the hard work. And it was simply chasing the wind. Nothing on earth is worth the trouble. <laughs> Suddenly I realized that others would someday get everything I had worked for so hard. Then I started hating it all. Who knows if those people will be sensible or stupid. Please don't think of your children at this moment. Either way, they will own everything I have earned by hard work and wisdom. It just doesn't make sense. I thought about all my hard work and I felt depressed. 
When we use our wisdom, knowledge, and skill to get what we own, why do we have to leave it to someone who didn't work for it? This is senseless and wrong. What do we really gain from all of our hard work? Our bodies ache during the day and work is torture. Then at night our thoughts are troubled. It just doesn't make sense. But then here is his conclusion. The best thing we can do is to enjoy eating, drinking, and working. I believe these are God's gifts to us. The Word of God for the people of God. <clears throat> Smoke them if you got them. That's a bit of slang from the trenches and foxholes of World War II. About a hundred years ago, only 2% of the U.S. population smoked cigarettes. A tiny number. But when the First World War broke out, and the trauma of that war was such that no one had ever seen, it became clear that whatever was inside a rolled cigarette seemed to calm the nerves of battered soldiers. It would be a half a century before nicotine dependence and cigarette carcinogens would be understood. So at the time, tobacco smoking was an easy fix to a difficult problem. General John J. Pershing, commander of all U.S. forces during World War I, wrote a letter to Congress, and I quote, You ask me what we need to win this war. We need tobacco as much as bullets. Tobacco is as indispensable as the daily ration. We must have thousands of tons without delay. When the second war descended onto Europe a generation later, the tobacco companies were ready. Packs of cigarettes became standard issue, supplied to soldiers with their kits and their canteens. Cigarettes became so important, so relied upon, that they were a form of currency. You didn't have to have money in the field, but you could trade a cigarette for almost anything. And if you were especially brave, a carton of cigarettes might be your reward and prove more valuable at the time than any metal they might pin to your chest. Pershing had been right. It seems that cigarettes were essential to winning the war for both soldier morale and economic survival. So when a sergeant or a lieutenant barked down the line, smoke them if you got them, it was a signal that the danger had passed for now, or the march was at a pause for now. Take a minute and collect yourself. Now, for that war generation, often called the greatest generation in U.S. history books, our parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents, they came home and pushed smoking percentages in this country to 60% by the 1960s. More people smoked than voted in elections. And they brought the smoke them if you got them lingo right into the workplace and quite literally created the smoke break. It endured a long, long time. I'm not old. I'm really not. But I was a freshman in high school when the new consolidated school was built. And only then, in 1987, were those 16 and older no longer allowed to go to a little hut behind the cafeteria and gather around a rusty burn barrel and smoke between classes. Cigarettes were also found in the concentration camps of World War II. They had a similar bargaining, bartering, and economic power. And yes, they were used for reward and punishment. 
to Viktor Frankl. One of the jobs he was assigned in the concentration camp was to lay railway lines, this brilliant physician. But at one point, he was pulled from that detail and had to single-handedly dig a tunnel under a road to put in a water main. He did the work so well, he was rewarded with 12 cigarettes. 12. And it was like winning the lottery. 12 cigarettes could be traded for 12 cans of soup. 12 cigarettes could be traded for 12 loaves of bread. A cigarette, when traded, could save you from starvation. A cigarette could be given to someone else for taking on a dangerous job one wished to avoid. You could do almost anything with cigarettes in the camps except one thing. Smoke it. The regular prisoner was prohibited from smoking in the camp. Believe me, it wasn't for health and safety reasons. It was cruelty. That little hit of nicotine to the brain represented a tiny little moment of reprieve from suffering, and there would be no reprieve from suffering. Only SS guards and supervisors were allowed to smoke in the camp with one noted exception. Here are Frankel's words. The only exception to this smoking ban were those who had lost the will to live and wanted to enjoy their last few days. Thus, when we saw a comrade smoking his own cigarettes, we knew he had given up. We knew he had lost his faith and his strength to carry on. So in the camps, smoke them if you got them was a death nail, not an opportunity to take a break. Why did some people give up? Why do some people today give up on life? Or put another way, how is it that people can endure the exact same circumstances, the exact same sufferings, the exact same soul-crushing challenges, and some will respond with strength and hope and resiliency, while others will respond with defeat and hopelessness and collapse. Viktor Frankl proposed that the difference in reaction had nothing to do with inherent strength or weaknesses, but attitude. Quoting him from last week, his words again, humans have both potentialities. Which one is actualized depends upon our decisions, not our conditions. Everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any, get of, any given set of circumstances. It is clear that you cannot control what happens to you in this life, but you can always control what you will do about what happens to you. And then this line rattles around inside of me like a ricochet. Those who demand to know what they will get out of life are doomed. The better question is, what is my life demanding from me? Those asking that question are on the way to discovering true meaning. And that brings us to both the failure and the success of the writer of Ecclesiastes. He spent most of his life asking the first question, what can I get out of my life? So he got on with indulgence, 
and consumption and experience and travels and building projects and feats of national and international accomplishments. You know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. What did he get out of life? Everything and nothing. He had to ask his question from a different perspective, from the all-important Frankelite attitude. What is life demanding from me? And on this point, these two Hebrew sages come to the same conclusion. Viktor Frankl said that there are only a handful of things that give life true meaning. And we're going to talk about those in these weeks. But one of those things, one of those precious things, is work. What you do. The teacher of Ecclesiastes said the same thing. The best we can do is enjoy eating, drinking, and working. I believe these are God's gifts to us. So, this is a good word today for youngsters, for college students, for mid-career grinders, for retirees, those who wish they could retire, those who are disabled, those who can no longer, for various reasons, do the work that they were trained to do, for those choosing careers, for those changing careers, for those who hate their career. Work, what you do, is essential in finding meaning in life. I did not say that work is the meaning of life. No. But when our attitude is attuned, work can be a source of incredible satisfaction. As the proverb is told, find something you love to do and you will never work a day in your life. That doesn't mean every day will be fun or that every day will be easy. We are not so naive because meaningful work is hard work, but it's meaningful to you and to the people that you serve. So I've clarified the audience, it's pretty much all of you. Let me clarify further what Frankel meant by the word work. Work could be a paying job. It could be an artistic pursuit. The work of creating something, a painting, a song, a moment, a sculptor. Work can be something you volunteer to do, an act of service. Work can be anything that you are attempting to bring into being. Work can be intellectual and advanced. Work can be mundane and routine. It can be extraordinary. It can be plain and simple. What matters is the attitude which one has for the work and the action taken in service to others. I have a proverb from Halil the elder. Halil was a Jewish rabbi, a Persian Jew, who moved to Jerusalem as a young man to deepen his studies of the Torah. He developed his own school of thought within Judaism. He grew into an influential scholar. He was an old man when Jesus of Nazareth was born, quite influential beyond his death and to this day. He and Jesus shared a few common teachings, actually. Let me show you this slide and put them side by side. Helio said, that which is hateful to you, do not do unto another. And that is the negative form of Jesus' positive commandment, do unto others as you would have done unto you. Helio said, love your neighbor. That is the whole of the Torah. The rest is explanation. Jesus said, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the whole of the law and the prophets. But to that proverb that he gave about work. He said this. Slide, please. 
If I do not do it, who else will? But if I only do it for myself, what am I? And if I don't do it now, will I do it at all? That's a good proverb. First, if I do not do it, who else will? What is it that you can do? You, as the person God has made you to be, uniquely yourself because of your nature and the environment and context that produced you. What are your gifts, your passions, your skills, your curiosities, your bend, your tendencies? This is the path for you. Question two, but if I only do it for myself, what am I? This is a question of service. If you land on work that only indulges yourself, that only serves yourself, it will not be meaningful work. It might make you rich. It might make you famous. But if it's just for you, it is selfishness. Find that work that helps others. And if it's not serving others, tender your resignation tomorrow morning and find something else to do. And three, and if I don't do it now, will I do it at all? Halil seemed to know that we are all a bit of procrastinators at heart. We will put off what we know we should do for a later time, and we will put it off for so long that we run out of time to do it at all. Everyone has different skills, different abilities, and come from different places. We all can't be doctors or PhD candidates or teachers or MIT graduates. We won't all pass the bar exam or make it into pharmacy school. But we all have skills. We all have gifts to be put to use. And when we put those to use in service of others, every job, every artistic expression, every volunteer task, every effort becomes a vocation. It's the Latin word vocatio. It was spoken of in the church a thousand years ago as a divine calling, a summons by God to complete a God-given task. And it's not confined to priests and nuns and saints. It's for all who recognize that their work means something to God, to themselves, and to others. When a physician comes to the bedside of a suffering patient, To alleviate that suffering, he or she is doing God's work, meaningful work. When a young man picks up your garbage can on Monday morning and pours it into a waste management truck, he is doing God's work. Would you like to be responsible for your own garbage? And who of us hasn't thanked God Almighty when the air conditioning tech finally arrives and we are saved from the Florida humidity. In fact, I could take a little air conditioning on the stage right now. Teachers, battered as they are these days by the expectations of the culture wars, they still go to work for the sake of the little ones who will never understand that sacrifice and they do God's work. A dentist alleviating pain that one thought was unstoppable, to me, that's better than any sermon ever preached. Or any monk taking vows. A bookkeeper bringing order and sense to a business owner or to the individual, because heaven knows most of us should not be left to our own calculations. A therapist who listens. A computer tech 
who fixes your internet outage, the lady who cleans your home, the men who cut your grass, the mechanic that gets your car back on the road, the painter trying to pull the essence of what they see in reality and put it down onto a canvas, the kid that takes your order at Wendy's, the man who cleans out the storm drains, the artisan at the farmer's market who put more care into those vegetables than you could ever pay for. I can go on forever. Every job Every bit of work, if it incorporates the skills the person has and it meets the needs of others and it is pursued with chutzpah and gusto, it is impossible for that work not to matter. It has to be meaningful for everyone that it touches. And for you who have reached or who are nearing retirement, and you think your days of meaningful work are over, let me speak to you for just a minute. Don't smoke them if you got them. What I'm saying is, don't quit on your life just yet. Do you know that there is an uptick of deaths each year? Twelve to 15,000 additional deaths every year, particularly in men, between the ages of 60 and 63 upon their retirement. They retire, and they're dead in a year. Why? Well, they wanted so much to get out the door. They get their watch, they get their certificate of uh, appreciation or whatever, cash their first Social Security check, and they go sit down, and they haven't realized that the work they have been doing for decades was actually giving them meaning to their life. And they don't replace that work with something else meaningful to do. And they pass from the scene. Are you telling me I shouldn't retire? No. I'm saying you shouldn't quit. Putting these thoughts together, I thought for the first time this week in a long time of a lady that was in the first church where I served as an associate minister. I was only 21 years old. And her name was Ella Brock. Everybody called her Granny Brock. Everybody. And Granny lived right next door to the church on the family farm. And she lived in a little white farmhouse that couldn't have been more than seven, eight hundred square feet. And I never saw Granny Brock walk. She was in a hospital bed from the first time that I met her. Her body twisted and racked by the most cruel form of arthritis. Her hands, her back, she was often just in a C profile, so bent over. She, you'll love this. She called me the little preacher because I was half the age and half the size of the senior minister, I guess. All the little preacher came to see me today. And I would go see her. And when I'd go and see her, she'd say things like this. Well, how's Bessie and G.A. doing? And I'd tell her. Well, I heard that Miller family's got a new baby. Have you seen it yet? No. Well, what about, what about Nan and Jerry? Are they doing okay? And I, after the first few visits, I thought, this woman knows every piece of gossip from here to Liberty School and back. How does she, what is she doing? But that's not what it was. You know what I discovered later? Her son brought to her every Sunday after church the updated prayer list. And she kept that prayer list, weekly prayer list, and the church directory by her bedside. And looked at the faces of people that she didn't even know. 
because she'd been unable to attend church for years. And she told me one time, she said, Preacher, when I'm laying here at night alone and the pain is unbearable, I just get that prayer list out. And I start going over the names. And you know what? God has given me this great opportunity to pray for people because when I was younger and healthier, I didn't have time to do this because I was too busy doing other things. But now, this is my work. Now tell me that that 90-year-old woman crippled by arthritis was not doing work that mattered. The world will never know her. She's been gone now for 30 years. But she was doing the work that God had given her to do. Everything can be taken from a man but one thing. The last of human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. And when we choose to do work that matters, that matters to ourselves, to others, and to our God, we have chosen to live a life of meaning.